Welcome to St. Martin the Fields and welcome to Great Sacred Music. A special welcome also to those joining us online. It will not have escaped your attention that there is going to be a, a wonderful occasion on Saturday for Charles III's coronation. And one of Charles III's favorite composers is Hubert Parry, who is a fascinating uh, character whose shadow uh, is long across early 20th century and late 19th century English choral music. He's really got his fingers on pretty much everything uh, when you recognize that he was the long-standing head of the Royal College of Music where he trained Vaughan Williams, Holst, Bridge and Ireland. But he began his life as an insurance underwriter. He, nobody knew that he was going to go on and be Hubert Parry, if you see what I mean. And he had to work his way up finding other jobs just like anybody else until he became recognized as a legend. He is best known for his tunes for Jerusalem and Dear Lord and Father of Mankind and the Coronation Anthem I Was Glad, which we're going to hear a little bit later, and the uh, Ode Blessed Pair of Sirens. But one of the ways in which he was also influential was that he was president of the Music in Wartime Committee that provided opportunities for professional musicians to contribute to the war effort by giving concerts and hospitals and camps. But it was a complex role for him because he was a Germanophile and the outbreak of the First World War was a catastrophe for people like Hubert Parry who saw Germany and Britain as really being one culture that enriched each other. And, it, and his life in, in so many ways is an insight into Edwardian Britain on lots of levels. So we're going to start, this is our tradition at Great Sacred Music by singing together and you can find uh, Oh Praise Ye the Lord on the inside of your sheets on, on the left. It was originally written, the music was originally written by Parry as an anthem, Hear My Words Ye People, which was written for the festival of the Salisbury Diocesan Choral Association in 1894. I don't know uh, if you've uh, ever participate in an occasion like this. I remember as a child being a member of a church choir, going to Wells Cathedral, which is the Diocesan Cathedral that I, of the area where I lived at the time, and just going into Wells Cathedral and being part of a, something like 15 to 1800 people, all of whom were members of choirs. And the sound, when we all started up singing, was just something beyond anything I've experienced in a church before or since. I could, I've never forgotten it. And, and you can imagine that, that was the kind of occasion for which this piece was originally written. And the intention was that the many parish choirs involved in the festival could quickly learn this section of the piece while the soloists and cathedral choirs sang the rest. And another doyen of late 19th century uh, hymnody, Sir Henry Williams Baker, uh, who was the force behind the publication of Hymns Ancient and Modern in 1861 uh, and its subsequent reprintings and appendices and editions and so on, uh, was the person who actually wrote the, the... It sort of feels like the words for this hymn have been there since the Bible, but well, which they have in a way because it's a setting of Psalm 150. But both the music and the, and the words actually were late 19th century productions. They just feel like they've been with us forever. They're in the bedrock of uh, English church music. Well, we're going to almost imitate the way this was originally done uh, in Salisbury in 1894 because we're gonna remain seated 
the professionals behind me are going to stand and lead us as we sing together, O oh, praise ye the Lord. That's what I call a proper hymn, and we even sang the amens. If you go to the southern tip of the Isle of Wight and walk up uh, in a northwesterly direction towards the Needles, eventually you'll find yourself in precisely the spot where Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote his poem, Crossing the Bar, and you can find a needle uh, of its own, a, a landmark that marks the place. He wrote those words as he contemplated his, uh, the approach of his own death, and he describes his confidence in moving from safe harbor to the unknown ocean beyond. He speaks of Christ as the pilot who has been on board all the while, but in the dark has remained unseen. God is for Tennyson, that divine and unseen who is always guiding us. Parry set those famous words to music, and we're going to hear them now.
want you to imagine what it was like for someone like Hubert Parry in the last two or three years of the First World War to sit at home while he heard news over and over again of his former pupils being killed uh, in the trenches. It must have been an incredibly depressing and depleting uh, experience. And uh, out of that experience, he wrote his famous songs of farewell, sometimes called one of the great choral uh, pieces in the English choral tradition. He chose a set of texts that, rather like Crossing the Bar, speak of a desire to escape the violence of a world at war and find peace in a heavenly realm. And they're made all the more poignant by the fact that his health was failing and was, his life was ended by the Spanish flu in 1918. And so even more poignantly, the first performance of these songs of farewell, farewell as, a, as, a, as a collected uh, item was at his memorial service in the Chapel of Exeter College, Oxford, in February uh, 1919. He died pretty much exactly on the date of the end of the First World War, and his memorial service was in Oxford four, four months later. So we're going to hear three of those songs of farewell now, each of which is fascinating in its own way. The first one, I Know My Soul Hath Power, written by Sir John Davis, who lived in the late Elizabethan and, uh, and during, the, during the era of James I. He was an English poet, lawyer, and politician. He sat at the, in the House of Commons uh, at different times between 1597 and 1621. He became Attorney General for Ireland uh, and fascinatingly, he was the person, perhaps more than anybody else, who formulated many of the legal principles that went on to underpin the British Empire. Uh, he had a very complex marriage. He had a very talented wife who was a prolific author, but she was also um, a, a person who foresaw events in the future. Three years before he died, she told him what was going to be the date of his own death, uh, and started dressing in mourning appropriately to prepare for his own death. And sure enough, he died on the very day that she predicted uh, of apoplexy. So um, the best description for, for which is seriously creepy. Uh, so that's I Know My Soul Hath Power. So lots of texture to that, to that piece. And then we're going to hear Never Weather Beaten Sail. Uh, Parry had a love of English Renaissance madrigals and part songs uh, that you can hear in the background of this setting of Thomas Campion's uh, poem. Campion was an early 17th century poet, composer, and physician whose poem contrasts the weariness of his earthly body with the glories of the coming heaven whose glory outshines the sun. Uh, in a sense, this, this is almost the definitive one of the songs of farewell that sums up the themes of all of them. And then we've got a, a, a bonus one, which we haven't listed on the program, but we're also going to hear there is an old belief uh, written by another fascinating, I mean, the original text, written by another fascinating person, John Lockhart, uh, whose seven stanza poem uh, we just have the last three verses of in Parry's setting. Um, what was interesting about John Lockhart? Well, he was a, a polymath who went to Oxford as an undergraduate at the age of 14, taught himself four different European languages, and I think, to be fair, never quite found the niche in life that his talents 
deserved, but what he's best remembered for, apart from this poem, which of course he never knew that Parry later set, uh, is his seven volume life of Sir Walter Scott. Can you imagine that? Seven volume life, much admired, but possibly little read. Uh, he had an inside track because Sir Walter Scott was actually his father-in-law. Let's enjoy these three classic songs of farewell together now.
Well, it's time for us all to sing again, and we're going to sing one of the most stirring hymn tunes in the repertoire and one of the great legacies that Hubert Parry left to this country. Uh, one of the great mysteries about the Gospels is that 90% of Jesus' life is not narrated in the Gospels. We don't know what happened from when he was an infant to when he emerged on the scene uh, for his baptism by John the Baptist. Obviously, nature abhors a vacuum, and people have filled that not knowing with all sorts of stories. And one of the great stories, apocryphal stories, is that a young Jesus, accompanied by Joseph of Arimathea, who, as you may know, was an accomplished tin merchant, not much about that in the Bible, but who cares, traveled to what is now England and visited Glastonbury in his, on, uh, his unknown years. So, based on that myth, uh, William Blake wrote uh, a, um, a poem from the pref in the poem. Beg your pardon. Wrote a poem in the preface to his epic Milton, a poem, and he, as I'm sure everybody here is familiar with, starts with these four great rhetorical questions. The first of which is, "And did those feet in ancient time?" And the shape of the, uh, the this what was originally a, a four stanza, four line poem is he asks these four questions he doesn't say this is the story of what what that jesus came to this country with a with a tin merchant he just asks these four rhetorical questions um and uh, the conclusion of which are more or less we don't know if jerusalem came to this country to glastonbury uh in the early part of jesus's life what we do know is that we can build jerusalem today and so that, that very muscular Christianity, as it's sometimes called, is rooted in, in, in this poem. It was practically unknown uh, until Robert Bridges, who was the poet laureate in the middle of the First World War, discovered it, sent it to his friend Hubert Parry, says, you know, pop a bit of music on this, will you? And it was Parry that turned it into, into two, a two-verse, a, a two-stanza, eight-line uh, production that we're familiar with today. That wasn't its originally form. And of course, beyond the First World War, uh, it became associated with the women's suffrage movement and then reached its apogee in joining JAM as the twin symbol of the Women's Institute, and it doesn't get bigger than that. We're going to remain seated, and the voices will stand and us as we sing this in the only way it can be sung, rousingly.
Well, there's a couple of rousing hymns for you today. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed yourself. We're coming towards the end of Great Sacred Music for this week. Uh, if you have enjoyed yourself, there's an opportunity to make a cash donation as you leave, or if you do online, then there's all sorts of ways, including a wonderful QR code on the back of your handouts. And if you're online, it's, it's just the online stuff for you. Uh, it won't surprise you to know that for uh, Choral Classics on Sunday at 3.15 and again for next week's uh, Great Sacred Music, we're staying with the royal theme. So do join us for either of those if you can. We're going to finish with I Was Glad. Where else can you finish? Uh, Psalm 122 has been sung at the entrance of every monarch at their coronation since Charles I first in 1625, and there are going to be some people at the coronation who remember back to, to those times. The psalm is a prayer for the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem. Its use in the coronation service draws a parallel between Jerusalem and the United Kingdom, as in the hymn we've just sung together. The most famous setting is the one we're about to hear, uh, first performed at the coronation of Edward VII in 19. And the well-known introduction was added for the coronation of George V in 1911. However, at the first performance of Parry's arrangement at the 1902 coronation, the director of music, Sir Frederick Bridge, misjudged the timing and had finished the anthem before the king had arrived, having to repeat it when the right moment came. Bridge was saved by the organist, Walter Alcock, who improvised in the interim. Let's give credit to all organists that they don't usually get and let's enjoy I was glad like you've never heard it before. Thanks for joining us.